All right, we're in Luke chapter 6, if you'll open your Bibles there. We're going to continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 6, and I'm going to jump right in. Uh, And so we begin, Luke 6, verse 6, now it happened. On another Sabbath also that he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Don't you love Dr. Luke? He's so precise. He doesn't tell us just that his hand's withered, it's his right hand that is withered. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 7, watched Jesus closely. They're watching him like a hawk. And why? Well, whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. Aren't they the caring, compassionate bunch there? They don't seem to care about this guy. They just want to know if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And then Jesus said to them, he's addressing, fronting off the the scribes, the Pharisees here. He says, I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or to destroy. And when he had looked around at them all, how'd you like to be in their shoes at that point? Can you imagine the power and the authority of the gaze of Jesus? Looks at them all, and apparently nobody says anything in reply. When he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other But they were filled with rage, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus, and I believe it's Mark's gospel that tells us that part of that discussion on what they might do with Jesus is they were talking about killing him, Uh, ever the caring, compassionate bunch there, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, you know, as I read through this, I'm reminded of a story that happened several years ago when, when I was the executive pastor at, at Revival Christian Fellowship. And I've told you this story before, but it's a good story and it's funny, so I'm going to tell you it again. Um, but uh, when I was there, one day, this, this cat shows up to service, this dude shows up to service, and he's Jesus, man. He's got the long hair, he's got the, bear, the beard, he's wearing the robe, he's got the sandals on. I mean, he's all but walking around with a peace sign, you know, doing this to people. He's, he thinks he's Jesus, like legit, thinks he's Jesus, shows up. So everybody, you know, the leaders that come running to me, they're like, what do we do? And I'm like, well, he wants to go to church, you know, let him go to church. Watch him like a hawk, but let him go to church, you know. So, so we're watching this dude like a hawk, and sure enough, doggone it, we gave him the benefit of the doubt, and uh, before you know it... Uh, turns out he's from a local cult. Uh, it's called Green Acres, and apparently it's the place to be. But um, so so he's there, and he starts. He saddles up next to sidles up next to this this gal, the single gal, and now he's trying to persuade her to come away with him to to his cult, to his commune. And so at this point, I'm like, "You're out of here, Jesus!" And so we grab Jesus and we escort him, not just out the door. I'm walking him off the property. Brenda happens to be up in the coffee shop with our kids at this point, looks out the window. She's like, oh, kids, come quick. Look, dad's throwing Jesus out of the church. (laughs) And I kid you not, you cannot make this stuff up. The dude shows up the following week with his sidekick, John the Baptist. (laughs) Really, truly happened. 
This time they got to the door and I said, just leave. Just leave. You guys aren't welcome. Now, that's a funny story. But what we read about here in Luke chapter 6, man, this ain't funny what's going down here. It's heartbreaking what we see going down in Luke chapter 6. And, and let me put this situation into context for you. If you've been with us as we've been going through the gospel of Luke, when we were in chapter 2, what we saw there in chapter 2 was a vastly different scene than what we see here. The chapter opens up with the birth of Jesus and the announcement by the angel Gabriel to the shepherds tending their sheep, and they hear this news, and with haste, they, they, they beat feet to go see Jesus, man. And they see the child there, and the, the, the heavenly host is declaring you know, the glory and all, and they just cannot get out quick enough just to spread the news far and wide, the good news that the Messiah has come. And you continue on in the chapter, and towards the end, you, you get and encounter this dude named Simeon. As well, you encounter a gal named Anna. Now, they're both old, well advanced in years. Simeon, uh, well into his 80s. Anna, some people say she may have even been 104 years old at the, at the time of Luke chapter 2 there. And it's at the eighth day when Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus to be circumcised. They're bringing the, the poor man's offering of a couple turtle doves there as they're, you know, they're worshiping God and bringing their, their child to be circumcised according to the, to the word. And so, so you've, got, you've got Simeon, and Simeon, like I said, he's in his 80s, and the Holy Spirit had spoken to him, Luke's gospel tells us, Luke 2, and the Spirit told Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He wouldn't see death until he saw the Messiah. And so Simeon there, he's this old guy, he's at the temple every single day, and he's watching for the Messiah, just waiting, watching, and as well, we discover Anna, you know, maybe 104 years of age, certainly old, uh, she also was at the temple every day. The text tells us that she served there every single day. It says that she never left the temple and that she fasted and prayed day and night. And so the two of them, man, you've, you, you, you have Simeon waiting expectantly for the Lord. You've got Anna there at the temple every single day worshiping the Lord. And it's not in my notes, but I'll but I just throw it out there. there here we've got, there, these are people arguably who are retirement age and they're serving the Lord. And, the, and the, we're, we are never too old. We never retire from being in a place to where we worship the Lord, where we serve the Lord. But here they are, and the Bible says that at long last, the day finally comes. Mary and Joseph, they, they, they show up. Here they're bringing you know, their eight-day-old baby Jesus. And Simeon sees Jesus, and he knows in an instant, this is the Messiah. This is the child of promise that I've been looking for every single day. And I picture the scene, and the text doesn't really give us the detail, but I imagine this old man coming up. And here's this, this young teenage couple, you know, teenage girl and, and all. And, and, and I just see this old man, just maybe tears in his eyes, maybe just shaken and, and just awestruck. Like, this is what God has promised me, what I've been waiting for. And I just see him saying, can I hold, can I hold the baby? Can I, can I hold him? 
And, and you know, you know I, I got this thing, you know, somebody's got a newborn baby, and I always, I always want to smell their head. They're just like, just got that brand new newborn baby smell, smells so wonderful. But here's Simeon, and it's just so much more. And, and the text tells us that he scooped the child into his arms, and he just began to worship the Lord, maybe even begun singing these words, but he's just worshiping the Lord. Here's what he says. He says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I've seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. The promise fulfilled, the hope for one found, delivered. And the Bible says at that moment that Anna ran over and she joined Simeon in praising God. And just like the shepherds eight days earlier, having seen the Messiah, Anna now goes out and she tells everybody that's going to listen, everybody, the text says, who was waiting expectantly for the Messiah, she cannot wait to deliver the news that our Messiah has come. Such a beautiful, gorgeous picture there in Luke chapter 2 and such a sad contrast that we have in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 2, you've got those watching intently to find Jesus, to worship Jesus. And in Luke chapter 6, you've got those watching intently to find an accusation against Jesus. Now, these scribes and these Pharisees, They're one of three characters here in uh, these few verses, verses 6 through 11, the text for us today. These three characters, you know, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees, you've got the man with the withered hand, and you've got Jesus, these three main characters here. And the scribes and the Pharisees, man, they're the religious leaders of the day. We've been watching them just tracking their, their antics for the past several weeks, just seeing how they've got it in for Jesus. They just cannot, you know, get on this guy enough. And as we saw last week, their, their intent on living according to religious rules and regulations. That's just, that's their jam. That's what they're all about. They're, they were righteous by keeping the law and, and all of the hundreds of laws that we've put around, the law that God has given to us. And not only are we righteous and hot on being keepers of the law, but man, we are going to just watch you like a hawk. And we are literally hell-bent on making sure that you... Are, are walking according to the law and keeping the law. And, and so this is their place. Now, they're dead wrong. They're dead wrong because the Bible declares that there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul says to the Romans, Romans 3.20, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And we looked at that in depth last week. But what we see here is that that sinfulness, when, when Romans 3.20 says that the law shows us how sinful we are, what we see manifested here vividly and grotesquely is that this is displayed by the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. Look at verse 7. It says that the scribes and the Pharisees, they watched Jesus closely, watched him like a hawk, whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Notice it says whether he would heal on the Sabbath. It doesn't say if he could heal on the Sabbath. 
And this is just damning and convicting for them because it tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees knew good and well that Jesus could heal on the Sabbath. They're just wondering, would he heal on the Sabbath? And that just tells us right there, dude, you missed your sign. You knew that he could heal. Um, What more proof do you need? Right? And so here these guys, they're in this place where they knew that Jesus had the power to work miracles, but none of that matters to them because they're not looking for the victory that Jesus brings. They're looking for him to do the violation of the law that they revere, that they hold so tightly to. And I wonder, I'm like, man, I look at this. How hard does your heart have to be that you're going to use this poor guy who's got this this arm that's been shriveled up, probably from birth, as we'll see in a little bit. How, how low do you got to be? How, how hard does your heart have to be that you're going to use this guy as bait to try and catch Jesus? You know, we're, gonna, we're just going to use this guy as, as bait, as a, as, a, as a pawn here that we can go after the Lord. And not only are they content to do that, that they're going to be looking for Jesus, but that they could be filled with rage when he's miraculously healed. How hard does your heart have to be? I love what David Guzik said about this section. He says, it's as if a man could fly and the authorities want to arrest him because he's not landing at airports. You know, here's this miraculous thing, and oh my gosh, look at that. Well, he's not landing at an airport. I'm going to discount everything that he's possibly done. They're completely discounting what Jesus has done. Now, how is it possible for so-called religious men to be so blind to God that they miss their Messiah, uh, that that they treat their fellow man so callously like they are, and that not only do they miss their Messiah, but they're actually fighting against God? How is that possible? Well, the answer is, as we saw last week, and as we see again manifested here, they're spending their whole life emphasizing rules over relationship, tradition over truth, law over Lord, and, and behind it all is hypocrisy, where, where the outside is an act and the inside is whacked. That's the whole thing. And, and so what's going down here is that because they're driven by this hypocrisy, Jesus actually warned his disciples in Luke chapter 12 that that hypocrisy was what he called the leaven of the Pharisees. Here's what he said. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, leaven is yeast. You probably knew that. And we all know what yeast does to the dough. We know that it causes it to rise But the mechanism of how it causes the dough to rise, that's where it's very instructive for us. When Jesus says that hypocrisy is the leaven of the Pharisees. See, here's the deal. You take a little tiny bit of yeast and you throw it in a a lump of, of dough. It only takes a little tiny bit. And what happens is it works through the whole dough. And it immediately goes to work on the dough. And what it does is it rots the dough. That's what leaven does. That's what yeast does. It rots the dough, and as the dough rots, it releases gases, and those gas bubbles are then trapped in the dough, and the dough then begins to rise. Now, you stick that in the oven, and you bake it up, and then you slice it into slices, and those little gas bubbles are the little nooks and crannies that you love to have your butter melt into when you toast that piece of bread. 
What a, picture, what a great picture of sin, right? Sin's pleasurable for a season. Season's always just too short, you know? And you're going to have to pay the piper, man. You step on that metaphoric spiritual scale, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's sin right there. The consequences of sin. And, and so what happens, what Jesus is doing is he uses leaven in this statement, the leaven of the Pharisees, to illustrate the legalistic appearance-oriented religion. This is, this is how he illustrates legalistic appearance-oriented religion. And the idea, hey, look, it rots you from the inside out. And more importantly, it keeps you from the only thing that can save you. See, because here's what the Apostle John said in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if, if we confess our sins... He, Jesus, is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John goes on to say in the next verse, but if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. And John tells us in the Gospel of John that the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That's the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And so the idea here is that, man, these scribes, these Pharisees, they deny Jesus. And they're proud and boastful. And, you know, hey, you know, we're not sinners. And they're calling God a liar and so on. And so that's our scribes and our Pharisees, our characters here. But in addition to the scribes and Pharisees, the, the second character in our story today is Jesus. And we see there in verse 7 that the scribes and the Pharisees are watching him like a hawk. They want to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. They want to find an accusation against him. And Jesus, in verse 8, he knows their thoughts. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he rose and stood. And then Jesus said to him, or said to them, to them these scribes and Pharisees, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it? See, Jesus here is making a point. And the point that he's making is this. He's saying, look, not only are there sins of commission, there are sins of omission. Now, we all understand sins of commission. A lot of times when we think of sin, we think of the things that we do, the acts that we do that we shouldn't do that are sinful, and that's a sin of commission. But there are also sinful things that we can, that we can commit, sins that we can commit against the Lord by failing to do something that God would have us to do. That's a sin of omission. I've omitted that action that is a sinful thing for me to do. And this is what, what uh, Jesus is saying here now to the scribes and the Pharisees. James 4.17 says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sin of, of omission. So Jesus making this point and, and basically, he's, he's saying, look, if I refuse to do this, this is a sin of omission. Now, this is where the harmony of the Gospels helps us out a little bit. Because both Matthew and Mark give us more details of this story. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, when, when he said this to them in, in verse 10, I'm going to ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? Well, he also said, according to Matthew... What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? 
You see, what Jesus is talking about here is he's, he's talking to the Pharisees about one of their man-made rules that they had, had instituted where the Sabbath was concerned, and they had all these different rules. And one of their rules was that if a live animal fell into a pit or, or you know, had some situation where uh, they needed to save the animal, then that was permissible on the Sabbath day. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's, he's just pointing that out, and he says, which, which one among you, if one of your sheep fell, sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you would go and rescue him. You'd, you'd be all about saving your bottom line and going taking care of the sheep. And, and so what he's saying here is this. He's saying, look, you heartless hypocrites, number one, if I don't do anything, this is a sin of omission. If I don't act, it's in my power to do so. This is, you know, this is the, the will of God for me to do this. If I don't do this, this is a sin of omission. And secondly, look, you would do the exact same thing if it, was, if it was an animal. And if you would do that for an animal, why on earth wouldn't you do that for a man? Why wouldn't you do that for a human being? I'm always astounded, you know, that you see pro-abortion people and so often the same people that are, that are pro-abortion have the Save the Whales bumper sticker or the PETA bumper sticker or they're all about, you know, you got to, you know, neuter and in, in, in whatever, spay, neuter, whatever it is, your cat, you know, you got to do that. They're all about that kind of stuff. They're all about, you know, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. I'm like, what about the ethical treatment of babies, man? You know, and, and so... So this is Jesus' point. He's like, you, you have it in your law. You would take care of an animal. Here's a human being for crying out loud. Now, I want you to notice there in verse 10 that Jesus, when he asks the question, he pointedly looks around and, and eyeballs every single one of this lynch mob pointedly looking at them, seeing them, and, and basically it would, it would appear that he deliberately chooses this occasion to provoke a response. Because, listen, Jesus at this point, he could have sized up the situation and just went, oh, gee whiz, I don't want the drama with these, with these knuckleheads. So I'll just be quiet. And, uh, and I'll just pull the guy aside when they're not around and I'll heal him. Or I'll wait until, until you know, the, the Sabbath has passed and then I'll heal him and just save all the drama. But Jesus, no, he's, he's fully aware of what's going down here and it would seem that he's provoking a response. And, you know, there's some speculation. Some people speculate that what went down here is that these scribes and Pharisees actually planted this dude in, the, in the, the synagogue, that they found a guy who had this disability, and they said, let's put him in there because Jesus won't resist being able to heal him, to heal him and then we'll have him, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, sting operation, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to get him. What they don't realize is that this is Jesus' sting operation for them. And it's not a sting operation in the sense that, look, I'm looking to get you. What Jesus is, is doing here is, is that he, he didn't want them to fail. He wants to give them the opportunity to repent. He's forcing the issue because his heart is that they would repent. And again, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, gives us more detail about what happens next. It says that when he, Jesus, had looked around at them, here's the detail that's added, with anger. 
being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, this is one of the few places in Scripture where we see that Jesus is described as having anger. Now, you or I, in this situation, most likely our anger would turn into sin. Real quickly, you know, PDQ and in a hurry, man. But what we understand about Jesus, the Bible says he's our our great high priest. And Hebrews 4.15 says that this high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So what we know from that is that Jesus, yeah, he's angry here, but we know that his anger was a righteous anger. We know that he did not sin in this anger, but the text tells us specifically what Jesus was angry about. He was angry at the hardness of their hearts, at the hardness of the men's hearts. Romans 1 verse 18 tells us this about the wrath of God. It says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's when the wrath of God is revealed. And we see the wrath of God here when the truth is being suppressed, when, the, when, when they're, they're being unrighteous in the attitude of you got to keep the law to be right with God, and you've broken the law. And, and so now he's like, look, look how hard your hearts are. You, you're ready to string me up, and there's no joy. There's no glorying about what's gone on in this guy's life. Beyond that, look at verse 11. What's it say there? It says they were filled with rage, and they discussed with one another what they might do To him, again, I think it's Mark's gospel, it says they they discussed killing him. They're they're collaborating with with the Herodians, who's a a, a group of people that followed King Herod. They're Jews, but all the devout Jews saw them as being sellouts because, you know, Herod was in cahoots with Rome and all. But, hey, you know, they, they kind of ascribed to the whole Sun Tzu you know, sort of theory that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, oh, you hate Jesus too? You're our friend. And let's go figure out how we can kill Jesus. And what hypocrisy. You're not religious. You're not spiritual. So I'm going to kill you. This is where they're at. They should have been filled with joy. I mean, you just think about it. Here's this guy probably, you know, in their town their whole life, seeing this poor guy disabled and he's miraculously healed. What a joyful thing. We should be celebrating this. We should, we should be praising God like Simeon praised God when he saw the Messiah, like Anna praised God when she saw the Messiah, like the, the shepherds praised God when they saw the Messiah. Praising God. They should have been cut to the heart. They should have repented. Think about Peter in in Luke chapter 5. Jesus gets in his boat. Hey, put out a little bit there, Peter. Okay, now put out into the deep. Let down your nets for the catch. Peter's like, eh, it's never going to work, but okay, whatever. I'll do it. And then a miraculous catch of fish. A miracle happens, and Peter says, I'm face to face with God right now. And what happens when he comes face to face with God? He doesn't harden his heart. He falls on his knees, which is, which is the right response when you come face to face with God. It's a matter of going, 
you're God and I'm not. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And, and he's like, depart from me. I'm, I'm, I'm totally unworthy. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a wretched man. And so this is the response that these folks should have had, but they've got hardness of heart, and Jesus is grieved over it, which brings us to our final character in our story today. And I'm going to be brief on this point. Final character in our story today is the man with a withered hand. Now that word withered in verse 6 of your Bibles, it's a word that's used to describe dry land. Uh, how land, when it dries out, gets shrunken and shriveled. And, and so the, the idea here is, metaphorically, this word is used to describe a part of this man's body that's been deprived of its natural juices, it's shrunken, and it's wasted away. And the idea here is that whatever ailment this man had, that it was likely chronic, he probably had this as a lifelong condition. Now think about that. Think about this man, withered hand, lifelong condition. That means, you know, as a child, he would have been unable to play like other kids. Unable, perhaps, to play with other kids. Growing into adulthood. Unable, perhaps, to enjoy many of the things that the people around him took for granted every single day. He's a man. Part of us as men, we want, we want career. We want meaning and purpose in the things that we do. Probably deprived of that. Probably, you know, absolutely, totally dependent on the good graces of others. Probably deprived of a, of a spouse. Probably deprived of the opportunity to, to raise children. Think about that, he could he never throw a ball with his kid. Never throw his child up into the air. And I wonder when I think about this guy, he probably had no clue when he got dressed that morning. Started heading down to the synagogue, something he did every week. And probably never, ever even crossed his mind. Today's the day then your life changes. Today's the day when Jesus shows up and he heals you. You're going to be made whole. Now I want you to understand the larger context of what we're seeing here. Jesus healing this man and coming as he did as the Messiah and fronting off these Religious leaders who are so fixated on, you know, earning a right standing with God by keeping the law and not recognizing the depravity of their hearts and their need for deliverance. This, this healing that Jesus is manifesting in this man's life is the healing that he wants to bring to these scribes and these Pharisees. Listen, it's the healing he wants to bring to your life. And it's the healing that only he can bring to our lives. You see, the context here, the larger context of Jesus bringing this healing, we see it reflected in Romans chapter 5. Let me put it on the screen for you. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. And Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. 
But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the gift of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. This is the larger picture here. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And his healing of this man is representative of the healing that he wants to bring to us spiritually and you can never attain it through doing good and trying harder. Through trying to be right with God by, by attaining some sort of standard of righteousness. As we close, that's the larger context. But can I draw your attention to two things about Jesus' commands to this man? And I want you to take a walk with them here. The first command that Jesus gives this man is in verse 8. He tells him, arise and stand here. And then Jesus' second command is in verse 10. Jesus commands him, stretch out your hand. Now what's the big difference between these two commands? The first command that Jesus gives this man is something he could do. But the second command that Jesus gives this man is something beyond what he could do. First thing he asks him to do, you could do this. Second thing he asks him to do, you can't do this. There's no way that you can do this. I'm asking you to do something that is impossible, that is totally beyond your capability. How do we reconcile that? How do we see God work in our life? Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this. I'll put it on the screen. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my uh, presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Listen to me carefully. Our life is a venture of faith. Your life is a venture of faith. It's one where we do what we can through the exercise of faith and it's one where God does what only he can do as he works in you. Get this clearly. It's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And because it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, it's always God's work to do, but it's a venture of faith. And so here's my challenge to you as we close. As we come to a time of prayer and as we just commit ourselves to the Lord, some of you today, you need to contemplate your salvation. 
You need to answer the question, am I hoping for heaven by what I do, by my works, by my good deeds, by, hey, there's some sort of celestial scale thing that's going to happen when I get to heaven, and did my good works outweigh my bad works? Is, is that going to get me in? If your faith is Jesus plus, hey, doing good and trying harder, whatever that is, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, you need to contemplate Am I in the same boat as these Pharisees to where, man, I, really, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to the works to save me. We've got to settle that today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. But for the vast majority of you, I venture to say you've settled the lordship issue in your life. And I just want to raise this question, man. Doing what you can do and Jesus doing what only he can do. We need to take a walk with that. Because sometimes we encounter the Lord and we're like, I, I, I've tried to quit drinking and I just can't quit drinking. It's impossible for me. Hey, you need, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so it's a matter of going to God and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm taking a step of faith here. I'm doing what I can do. But this is flat impossible to me, for me, God. But by faith, I'm going to stretch out my arm here. Heal me. Deliver me. Deliver me from my addictions. Deliver me from this temptation. Deliver me from whatever it is, this thing that is impossible for me. God, I know that you call me to forgive, but God, you of all people, God, know what this person did to me. I can't, you're asking me to do something that's impossible for me. I cannot forgive that person. Do what you can do and let God do what only he can do. Stretch out your arm and let God do that work.